Hello listeners and welcome to the Montel Weekly Podcast, bringing you energy matters in an informal setting. In today's pod, we will delve into the COP26 that ended last weekend. Was it the success that global leaders claimed it to be? Or was it a failed last attempt at solving the climate crisis? More blah blah blah, as Greta Thunberg said, or were there some elements that could turn the tide in the fight against climate change? And how far are we away from a global carbon price? This week, listeners, we have a slightly different format. So helping me, Richard Sverison, to discuss these issues are two prominent climate negotiators and experts on carbon markets. We have Lambert Schneider of Germany's Institute for Applied Ecology and Andre Marku of the European Roundtable on Climate Change and Sustainable Transition. First of all, I'd like to warmly welcome you, Lambert. Hello, good morning. Thank you. COP26, it was in the news almost every day. But how was it for you? How was it being there, Lambert? For me, it was the busiest COP I ever had. It was my 20th COP, but uh, we were finalizing the rules for international carbon markets on Article 6 of the Paris Agreement. And that was a busy time for everybody who was involved. We'll come to that a bit later. But did he walk away from it thinking this is a good deal? This is a good agreement? Or was it a bit of a cop-out? I think it was better than I expected. Of course, an agreement always is a compromise and uh, you never get everything what you want. And it could have been more ambitious, but it was much better than I anticipated just a few days before the end. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So could you describe some of the negotiations, how the negotiations for our listeners, I mean, did they go on long into the night? What was required? Buckets of coffee and patience? Can you describe some of the nitty-gritty discussions that you had and what form they took? These negotiations, say they really take different forms, like you have official meetings where you meet with all parties and they are co-facilitated. Uh, maybe there are 100, 200 people sitting in the room. And then you have bilaterals uh, with other parties uh, where you discuss specific topics. And then you have these small circles where you sit together and you try to draft compromises. Also in the EU, we always spend a lot of time within the EU to coordinate ourselves, our positions. And then sometimes you need to draft submissions, something you send to the COP presidency and you seek support from other parties. And you say, well, we've drafted here something and we have broad support. Please put this in the text. Okay, so you mentioned Article 6. In terms of discussions on international carbon markets, what did they build on from Paris? What was the progress that you saw there? Yeah, in Paris, Article 6 was adopted, which includes 6.2, which is kind of a general framework for engaging in carbon markets, what countries need to do. And then it establishes a new mechanism, the Article 6.4 mechanism. And the Paris Agreement on that is really short, like it has one page, right? And what we were doing the last six years is finalizing the rule book. So getting all the detailed rules, what this one page in the Paris Agreement means on paper. And now we have maybe, I don't know, maybe 30, 50 pages, which really set out the details, what the Paris Agreement means. And this was still lacking, like in 2018 in Katowice, the rule book was last, largely finalized on many other matters. And this was the only chapter that was still lacking. And so what were the main sticking points here? One main sticking point is accounting. That means how you account for the international transfers of mitigation outcomes for international trading of, of carbon credits, for example. 
and how to avoid double counting in doing that. And one of the main outcomes was that there are really no exemptions. So everything what is internationally transferred needs to be accounted for, whether it's inside or outside the scope of nationally determined contributions. There are also no exemptions under the Article 6.4 mechanism, which Brazil was demanding for a long time. So that's one of the big achievements. What was Brazil hoping for here and why, why was that its position? Yeah, Brazil for a long time argued that if they sell carbon credits, they do not need to account for them. They do not need to make additions or subtractions in their emissions balance. And I think my interpretation is that they kind of wanted implicitly to continue the Kyoto type trading where developing countries did not have targets and, and could get finance. But of course, Brazil has an economy wide target. And so if they sell carbon credits, the emission reductions appear in their national inventories, which they use to track progress. And so they would also count them towards achieving their own target. And that's the so called double counting there. So. So the, the, the country that the trading partner tags it as, as a reduction, but also Brazil at the same time. That was before the previous position of Brazil. Yeah, they, they wouldn't call it double counting, of course, because double counting is, mm. is prohibited. But they argued for rules which ultimately would have led to double counting. Okay. What were the successes and perhaps the disappointments in these negotiations that you were involved in? Yeah, I think the comprehensive accounting, which we got, the, the prize for that was that we have some transition from the clean development mechanism, from the Kyoto Protocol to the Paris Agreement. And that means that some of the carbon credits generated under the CDM can be used towards achieving nationally determined contributions under the Paris Agreement. So, so there's some form of banking of units, right? And and um, that all the projects without limitation, which were registered under the CDM, could principally transition and continue under the new mechanism of the Paris Agreement. You've described it in a blog you, you wrote after COP26, that there was a loophole that remained here. Could you describe that for us, Lambert? Uh, yeah, I think the issue is that if you use carbon credits from the clean development mechanism to achieve NDCs, um, that undermines the ambition of these NDCs, the nationally determined contributions by countries, the climate targets, right? Because the emission reductions uh, from these CDM projects, they have occurred anyways in the past. And if you take now a decision and you say, okay, these emission reductions, which have already occurred, I can use them to achieve future climate targets, that may lead directly to more emissions to the atmosphere. Is this similar to the, the issue of additionality that we see in other renewables markets, Lambert? Yeah, it is similar, but not exactly the same issue. So maybe some of these credits, um, they were even additional. But here the issue is that the emission reductions have occurred and they have occurred regardless whether you allow these credits to be transitioned to the Paris Agreement and used towards climate targets under the Paris Agreement, right? And so by taking that decision, you will not trigger any further emission reductions but you will just dilute the climate targets if the credits are used to achieve them. So already, those emissions reductions have already been achieved. You're not creating any, any new ones. What's the life look like after the, the clean development mechanism? What has replaced it? Yeah, the decisions also include the establishment of this new mechanism under Article 6.4. It's a successor of the CDM. And instead, the CDM will be closed. So basically, we have a new UN mechanism, a successor of the CDM, 
which is more ambitious than the CDM. So that's also one of the important outcomes. For example, emission baselines, they must be set much more conservatively than under the CDM. And so hopefully the integrity from the new mechanism will be higher than it was from the CDM. Yeah. So what's the, the role for CERs there? Are they, they'll just be phased out? Yeah, I think emission reductions achieved until the end of 2020 can still be issued under the CDM for a while. And any emission reductions generated after 2020 will have to be issued under the new mechanism. So you mentioned the NDCs. Could you describe to a layman what these what these actually are and why they're important? Yeah, under the Paris Agreement, countries need to submit every five years so-called nationally determined contributions, NDCs. There's a legal obligation for countries to submit the NDCs, but the content they can determine themselves. So how ambitious the climate targets are, that's all self-determined by the countries. And this is an annual target or is it sort of, do they have a one year, do they, they'll set a target for, for 2030 or 2040? How, how does this work? Currently, most countries have set targets for 2030 and their so-called NDC implementation period is a 10-year period from 21 to 2030, but the target is for 2030. One of the outcomes from Glasgow was about common timeframes uh, of NDCs, and that means what target, what time period future NDCs should cover. And so what was agreed is that the next NDCs, which are due in 2025, they should address 2035 as the target year. And then the ones which are submitted in 2030 should address 2040 as a target year. So what happens next? What's the roadmap like for, for COP27, Lambert? What are, what are the, the key issues uh, in the coming year or two? I think with the rule book that was now adopted in Glasgow, carbon markets can be implemented. Countries can exchange carbon credits and count these towards their nationally determined contributions. There's also the new mechanism uh, being established. A supervisory board for that mechanism is being elected. So in principle, Article 6 is now operational. There are a number of issues uh, which parties couldn't agree in Glasgow. So a work program was established and the negotiations over the next year and maybe even longer will have to address these issues which couldn't yet be resolved. So it will go further in some political matters and in more technical details, but the basic general rules are ready and in place. Excellent. So there'll be uh, some tough talking ahead, maybe. I think, yeah, there will be some tough talking, but I, I hope that it will be easier because now at least the, the big picture rules are in place, right? And the big political issues have been resolved. And, and just finally, Lambert, how far are we from, from a global carbon price? I think we will never have one single global carbon price. I think we will have different emission trading systems with different prices. They will not all be linked for, for political reasons. And also we will have different carbon credit prices depending on their quality, depending what they are, etc. So I think it's maybe not even the aim to have one single global carbon price. But to have these markets interlink, but also not just the emission trading systems, but also the carbon credit trading. So that seems to be quite a complex picture here. It is quite a complex picture. I think there will be different types of carbon credits being traded. For example, there are some which will help the country to achieve their NDC. So, so they, they are kind of not double counting risk-free. 
And there are some where the country gives away the emission reductions and makes the full accounting under the Paris Agreement. And these two will be traded in parallel. And you could have different types of attributes uh, to carbon credits, right? And, and, and then these may be exchanged as different contracts. So you will have markets, you will have kind of relatively global markets for certain types of carbon credits, but it will not be one single market. It will be different markets uh, where the carbon credits have different attributes. Excellent, Lambert. Thank you very much for joining the Monto Weekly Podcast this week. Yeah, thanks to you. Continuing our discussion on the aftermath of, of COP26, but this time focusing more on the impact for Europe's energy firms and carbon trading is Andre Marku. A warm welcome to you, Andre. Thank you for having me here today. It's a pleasure. Let's start off, Andre, by talking about the COP26 more generally. What, what's your view of the agreement reached, of the, of the Glasgow Climate Pact? Well, it's certainly a, uh, an ambitious achievement. I would say probably a bit more that, than many had expected. And, and there was a crescendo that led to this. As we've seen in some other COPs over the last number of years, people tend to pull a rabbit out of their head. At the very end, and there's, as Greenspan used to say, there's exuberance that, that comes into play and a lot of things that you wouldn't expect would come out. But they have been in the working and it's, it's clear that the process, I mean, the, the Glasgow Declaration, the, the Glasgow Pact, what it really does, it sets up a, a process of ambition and of a process of ensuring that ambition continues from here to the next COP and so on through a, a series of ministerial meetings, synthesis reports that are come up every year, a process that is a draft conclusion or a draft, a draft decision that is being prepared by the subsidiary bodies in the review or review at, at Sharm el-Sheikh next year to put in place the process of raising ambition every year. So that those are very significant things. These are not things that existed so far. So if you look at the declaration to the effect that say that, you know, the established the work program to urgently scale our mitigation ambition and recommend the draft decision. So all of a sudden you're going to be faced with a, with a draft decision that would create a mechanism that would kind of, if you want, force countries to, to raise ambition on a more regular basis. Right now, that it, it, it's pretty much at the pleasure of the countries. They're being, they're being invited, they're being coaxed, they're being whatever you want to call it, but there's never been a mechanism in place that makes them do that. So in a sense, Andre, it's getting the ball to roll faster and in a, in a certain sense, a certain clear direction. It creates an air or a, or a sentiment of inevitability and this continued pressure, if you wish, that now is being institutionalized. There are processes that exist. The, you know, the MOCA, which is run by the Canadian, the St. Peter's Dialogue, which is run by the Germans. There are a number of, of, of uh, the pre-COP, this, that, and the other thing. But these are, in, in some ways, things that are being put in place by various government or coalition governments that wish to keep this in the public eye and keep up the political pressure. Now you have an institutionalized, in the UNFCCC process, set of, of activities that will continue this dialogue, but in a much more formal way. So it, it does represent, in my opinion, a significant change that will be felt. And again, if we have two cops coming out ahead of us. They're very unusual. We have two cops in the Arab world, one in Egypt and one in the UAE. Even that in its own way, who would have thought 
10 years ago that you'll have a cop in Egypt and one in the UAE. But there was at times a kind of disconnect between the jargon, the terminology, the abbreviations used by the petition participants at the COP and, and the wider crisis engulfing parts of the world, uh, you know, had Greta Thunberg saying blah, blah, blah. Is the pact that was agreed, is it consistent with the Paris Agreement? Well, it, it certainly bends the curve towards two degrees and maybe a little bit under, but the conversation now has not, you know, it's not about two degrees anymore. I think the conversation has become about 1.5. My sense is that it's also the inevitability that has dawned on industry that now all of a sudden has decided that, all of a sudden has decided at some point, there's always an inflection point in life into almost almost everything. And the realization has come is that, you know, there is this new world that you have to live in and, and business has a way of adapting itself and, and making, in making the best of what's coming up. So, they're looking for no opportunities. I think now they're engaged. The moment you're engaging these people, I think the momentum changes dramatically. It's almost like who's leading who here? You know, the, the business community leading politician and politician pushing from behind. So it, it really is accelerating. I just want to ask you about Article 6 and the, the, the firming of rules for offsets from the, from the Paris Agreement, agreed in Paris. Does this increase or reduce the risk of, of corporate greenwashing? Look, I'm one that I have some roots, deep roots in the business community. I've been in the think tank world for the last 10 years, but nevertheless, I still remember where I come from and I try to understand them. So I don't know about greenwashing. I think that, you know, governments will put in place mechanisms that, are, that provide flexibility we still live in a, in, a, in a market economy. So the fact that you apply market mechanisms and economic approaches to addressing a scarcity, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I think that we should welcome that. So I don't believe that this is, represents greenwashing. I think it's the rules are fairly tight. Now, one thing, Richard, is that you have to remember that there is no nothing certain except death and taxes. <laughs> so if you want 100% certainty, then you better not get out of bed. Mm. Yes, there is always a risk. <laughs> There's always a risk that there is going to be a little imperfection here and there. But we're not looking at imperfections here. We're looking at a mass movement of gigatons. I hear you very clearly, Andre, and that's, that's very reassuring. Um, I'd also like to touch on what Article 6 then means for, for the ETS in particular and for, for European energy firms. Does it, I mean, for example, does it change the level of ambition that we can go from, say, to 61% carbon reduction by 2030 or 63% even? Well, look, I just finished before, you know, this discussion. I just had an interview with, with Alina Badran, who's the acting director uh, for International in the commission. I, I, I had on my list of questions to ask her that. Because frankly, the uh, Article 6 is about international cooperation. The two parts are really that are of interest to most people that you talk to. They, we shouldn't be putting out Article 6 down, Article 6 8, but 6 2 and 6 4 are the ones creating the framework for markets. They, they are, in a way, relevant and not relevant to the EU. They're not necessarily relevant. They're not relevant in the sense that the EU will not accept credit, international credits that can be used as offsets in the ETS, the same way that we use this uh, CERs during the, the Kyoto Protocol. That's quite clear. I think that we repeated ad nauseum from the vice president Timmermans down to, to the head of unit in the in DG Klima. So from that point of view, in terms of imports of, of credits that would act as a, as a cost containment mechanism, 
that and that would allow an increase in ambition doesn't seem to be in the cards in the EU. What it does, it regularizes, if you want, from a Paris Agreement point of view, the linking of emission trading schemes, such as the one that we have with the Swiss, and any other emission trading link, any other linking of emission trading scheme that may come in the future. So it does create the international framework for the exchange of credit between emissions trading schemes. What will happen is now that I think the EU may find itself, actually the business community, the EU, in my own opinion, may find itself in the odd position where some of their competition, whether it's in Japan or, or the United States or, or some other countries that will accept in their NDCs, they've made a statement, they, have, they accept international international transfers, may benefit for a more economic point of view, they would benefit for kind of a cost containment through international credits, which probably would cost less than what is doing done domestic. While EU business will not benefit for that because we are not allowing international credit in the EU. So I would argue, I could argue, depending who's going to accept them and to what level of, of, of amplitude they'll accept it, that it is possible that EU business may find itself a certain disadvantage. As compared to the its competitors out there in the US or Japan, absolutely. A final question, really, Andre. With the climate pact agreed in Glasgow, would that add pressure on, on Germany or Poland, for example, to accelerate coal closures? I think that is not, this is not for Germany and Poland. was not written for Germany and Poland. This was written for the, the, the South Africans and the, the Chinese and the, the Indians. Germany and Poland are part of the European Union, which, which has fairly ambition target. I think that there is obviously going to be internal, before there is external pressure of the, of the UNFCCC statement. I mean, that always acts as a backdrop. That always acts as a backdrop for EU policy because we are part of the Paris Agreement. But the, the primary pressure will continue to come, I believe, through uh, from domestic EU policy and politics with the backdrop of the Paris Agreement and this renewed call for phasing down, uh, phasing out, phasing down coal, I think that both Germany and, and, and Poland do understand that there is a phasing down and a phasing out. And at this point, I think it's a matter of the speed with which is happening. And I think that there is a, will be increasing pressure as we move forward with these ratcheting up mechanisms which we can expect that the EU may, you know, what, what one can expect, Richard, is that with this annual review and the stake stock take coming out 23, 28, you know, 55% may not be the last call. Absolutely. Well, let's, uh, let's, um, let's hope so, Andre. And uh, thank you very much for joining the Monster Weekly Podcast this week. Well, thank you for having me. So listeners, you can now follow the podcast on our own Twitter account, aptly named the Montel Weekly Podcast. Please direct message, any suggestions, questions, or, you know, let us know if you, if you think you have a good idea for a guest on the show. You can also send us an email to podcast at montelnews.com. Lastly, remember to keep up to date with all that's happening in energy markets on Montel News. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thank you and goodbye.